If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the third Gospel, and we have been going through his account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have arrived now to chapter 12, nearing the end, here, beginning at verse 49. We will look this morning from verse 49 to the end of the chapter at verse 59. And if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient for our faith and life. Luke chapter 12 beginning at verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, You say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, it's something that I think has happened to everyone. And I think, although I will not ask for a show of hands to embarrass anyone, I think it's something that all or nearly all of us have done as well. You know what it is. It's the dreaded forwarded email. That email that you forward that tells you something horrible has happened or is about to happen. And eventually, someone of the dozens it has been forwarded to will do this magical thing. They will open up this place called Snopes. And they will look to see if it is actually true or if it's something that has been made up and is simply perpetuated by email forwarding. And I have to say that more than nine times out of ten, it's confirmed that it's false. It's not something we really need to worry about. 
that they haven't secretly burned the Declaration of Independence, that there aren't Wiccans in charge of CBS. We just need a little bit of discernment. Because, you see, often we want to believe the problem that is in front of us. It seems so reasonable. It seems something we should get concerned and angry about. So much so that we fail to pause for a moment and try to gauge whether it's actually true. Now, this is not something catastrophes are made of. This is solved very simply by one delete key on our computer. But the problem is we can often live our lives with the same lack of discernment. We assume we know the answer to spiritual things. We assume we know what is important. And this morning Jesus tells us that we have to have discernment and that discernment comes from following Him and His Word. And if we have this discernment, we will see three things Jesus says this morning. First, we will understand Jesus. Second, we will understand the message. And then third, we will understand our need. Jesus gives us clear instructions here in chapter 12 about himself, his work, and the gospel. Well, let's begin then at verse 49, looking at who Jesus is. Now, when you speak about Jesus Christ, it can seem intuitive, obvious that we know who he is, what his mission is, and what he thinks is important. And it seems to me that in society at large, every day that we get closer to Christmas, there seems a greater and greater certainty about Jesus and his mission. People who haven't thought about it all year in the heat of summer or in the flowers of spring are certain they understand the purpose of the universe and Jesus. And they can back it up with a half dozen or a dozen Hallmark movies that give the same message, understanding what we are all about. But Jesus here speaks some words that put us off guard. They help us to understand who he is and what he is doing. But they break up our perception. Look at verse 49. I came to cast fire on earth. Try to work that into a Christmas carol. It seems odd coming out of Jesus' mouth, doesn't it? And would that it were already kindled. Jesus wants fire to be kindled as soon as possible. It's not exactly Jesus, meek and mild. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Who is this Jesus that wants to kindle fire already and who is distressed? Well, this is a Jesus that knows his mission. He knows the cost. And he knows what is at stake. Jesus has just been speaking about his return. If your eyes can move up a few verses, you'll recall last week we talked about being ready for Jesus and his return. And when his return comes, it comes with fire. A fire 
that brings judgment, but a fire that is also refining. That great fire that will purge away all sin. It will separate forever those who will follow and believe in Jesus and those who will not. And it refines those who have faith in Christ, burning away all of their sin and imperfections so that they might be more and more like Jesus. That's what Jesus is telling us. He is reminding us that his return comes with judgment and flames. There is a cost to that. Because you see, Jesus is not one merely who judges others. Jesus is one who has already been judged. He has been judged for the sake of his people. You see, the baptism with which Jesus is to be baptized, does not refer to what has already happened, how John baptized him in the River Jordan. No, this is something Jesus is looking forward to. It is not a baptism with water. It is a baptism with fire and judgment. Just what Jesus is speaking about. It's one of the reasons that in the lead-up toward the Christmas season, we must remember that there was a purpose for Jesus coming and His purpose was to die, was to be under the wrath of the living God, was to suffer the punishment of all sin, infinite, eternal punishment, a punishment that only Jesus could stand under. You see, Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. He was not someone who did not see Pilate and Herod coming. He did not see the plot. He is not one who failed to understand that they would take Barabbas. He is not one that would be surprised by the judgment to come. No, Jesus is telling us here he knows exactly what is coming and he is willing to go to the cross. And if you hear that, that is good news. For you see, Jesus' death was not an accident. It was not cosmic treason. Jesus' death was purposeful, something that he purposed from all of the days of his life. He was willing to go to the cross. He was focused upon the cross through all of his life. You see this here. He says, how great is my distress until that baptism is accomplished. Each and every day, his life was put in the context of his work on the cross. Some of you may have experienced something similar in a lesser degree. When you enter college. Now, for some of us, college is a time of finding ourselves and of doing fun things. But for others of us, perhaps I might say the more type A of us, from the very first day of college, we are mapping out our assignments. We are finding out when our exams are. We are looking forward to that day when we will graduate and we will get the degree. Everything we do, every class we take, every organization we are involved in, every professor we talk to is focused upon that end point, that goal. That's what Jesus' life was like. Every person he talked to was in the shade of the cross. Every miracle he performed was to highlight the purpose of the cross. 
every person he discipled was to highlight the cross. Every single thing that we have seen is in that context. Because you see, Jesus knew what was needed. He would not rest until it was accomplished. He was completely focused upon his people. And if you this morning have come to trust in Jesus by faith, have put all of your hope in Him and His work, and have given up trusting in your own merits, then Jesus, even then, was focused upon you. Jesus knew what it would cost to redeem a people. He did not shrink from it. All that He did was for those who would trust in Him. It gives a whole new meaning to the Gospels as we, as we read them. All of the difficulties Jesus endured. All of the harshness thrown upon Him. All of the sleeplessness, the hunger, the thirst. All of the exasperation of speaking to people who didn't understand. It was all done for you. Because you couldn't do it yourself. Because no matter how hard you try... You don't have the solution to sin. Because no matter how fervent you are, you do not have the solution to righteousness. Understanding Jesus requires understanding the cross. We must be discerning with the person of Jesus. We cannot make Jesus in our own image. We cannot make Him who we want Him to be. There are oh so many that love the Jesus in the manger. He doesn't speak. He doesn't demand. He doesn't make requirements. He doesn't call us to obedience. And you see, we so often want to cast that as only who Jesus is. When you think about who Jesus is today, this week, next month, Remember verses 49 and 50, that who Jesus is, is centered around the gospel and his work of atonement. That's who Jesus is. But we don't just need to understand Jesus, we need to understand the message as well. And Jesus moves to a slightly different topic in verse 51. By doing what he so often does, he asks penetrating questions. Could you imagine what it must have been like to be a follower of Jesus? Some of our young people have a good idea about that because you face these kind of penetrating questions from mom or from dad on occasion. But imagine if they were always right, always perfect, always designed to make the correct point. That's what Jesus does. He asks a very odd question. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth. Well, if we stop right there, what would our answer be? Well, of course. Isn't that what every Christmas carol is about? Joy and peace and happiness? Isn't that what we think Jesus is all about? To make everything smooth and good, to make everyone kind and nice. Look at Jesus' kindness here. He doesn't let the disciples answer. 
He moves swiftly and he says, no, I tell you, rather division. What? This seems very odd. It goes against everything that we believe. As a matter of fact, we might want to correct Jesus here. Jesus, Luke has been telling us about all the peace that you were to bring. In chapter 2 and verse 14, the angels announced glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When Jesus met with people, when he met with the woman in Luke chapter 7, he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In Luke chapter 8, he says to another woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus actually tells his disciples when they go from house to house to say, peace be to this house. So how can it be that Jesus says when he comes, he does not come to provide peace? He comes to bring division, radical opposition. What does this mean? Jesus makes it personal, doesn't he? Son against father. Daughter against mother. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Right in the family. What we have to understand is that Jesus did not come to bring the kind of peace that the world wants or expects. Jesus did not come to paper over all differences and to mold everyone into some Shade of off-white so that everyone is just simply kind and holds their tongues. No, Jesus came to bring a real peace. And the only way to real peace was division. Because you see, what the world wants is vague peace. The world will be happy with you, beloved. If you go out of these doors and you begin to speak to complete strangers about spiritual things. People like that. It's safe. It doesn't make any demands upon them. They can think the exact opposite as you and be just as right. No one is judged. No one is right. No one is wrong. No one has to do anything. Oftentimes, even Christians will fall into this pattern. They will say something like, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation, but, you know, my neighbor, he could probably find God through Buddha. And I'm sure that Jews and good Muslims, we all believe in the same God. There are many ways to heaven, aren't there? And we see this not just in uneducated, we see this in Christian ministers, we see this in ministers who have a broad platform, who go on television and say, well, I don't really know what it means to be saved. I believe in Jesus, but I'm not really sure anyone needs to. History shows us that Jesus and his claims always divide. It was divisive in the Roman Empire. Christians were shunned. They were persecuted. They were killed. They were enslaved. Saying Jesus is the only way to salvation is the quickest way to get yourself ignored at school, at work, or in your neighborhood. 
If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe, that will not bring peace. It will bring division. It will bring argument. Insistence on anything as absolute truth will bring about conflict. That's what Jesus says. Now, you have to understand, Jesus is referring to those principles. He is not saying that I want everyone to fight with each other. Do not use this text, do not use his example as proof positive that you can be miserable to your mother-in-law. Look, Jesus says, mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws will fight. It's in the Bible. No. Do not let your behavior be the cause of division. There's enough division caused by the purpose of Jesus. You see, we have enough of that trouble, as it were, without ourselves getting in the way. Jesus is the one who causes the division because actually the message belongs to Jesus. The peace belongs to Jesus. He sets the terms. He takes it out of our hands. And when he does, that makes people upset. When Jesus says, I have come for a purpose. When Jesus says, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. When Jesus declares, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That brings about problems. Arguments. Confusion, because what we really want is a vague spirituality. What we really want is not to be challenged. We don't want to be told how we should raise our children, how we should treat our spouse, how we should work. We don't want to be told what we should do. But Jesus declares that over and over and over again. In absolute terms. He doesn't say, well, you can do it this way if you like. But you could try this if it's more to your liking. It would seem self-evident that I should not have to stand in a pulpit and say this, but our society is so twisted that we must. Jesus did not come to earth and say, all paths lead to God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus did not come and say, what you believe doesn't matter. Over and over again, he calls us to trust in him, to believe upon him, to learn from him, to sit at his feet. Jesus did not come and say, you know, all people are basically good. If he had believed that, There would have been no reason for him to come. Jesus did not say, you know, you can do what you want. As long as you say you believe certain things, go ahead and do whatever you want. No. What Jesus did was he came to bring true peace. Jesus came at cost that we cannot imagine and lived a life of complete perfection and sinlessness around Sinners. And then he went willingly to the cross to pay a price that we cannot fathom. That we might know true peace. True peace with God. 
Paul tells us that Jesus came and preached peace to those who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The only way that you can know peace with the creator of the universe and of yourself is through Jesus. There is no other path. And peace with God brings personal peace. Jesus has come to bring you deep and meaningful personal peace. Jesus says in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. Not vague and amorphous and hidden and false. No. True peace. And therefore, let not your hearts be troubled and be not afraid. For if you know the true peace of what Jesus has and brings, you will not be troubled, you will not be afraid, for you know that He has purchased true peace for you. And a byproduct of this is, of course, peace with others. Once we know peace with God, and once we have a peace that passes all understanding, we're able to put other things in perspective. We're able not to get angry over small things. We're able to treat others with kindness. We're able to see others with their true value. For we know that we are not deserving. We are not the ones who are right and perfect. And when we know that about ourselves, we become more patient with others. Have you thought about that? That the more deserving you think you are, the less patience you have with others. Isn't this self-evident? Parents, what area do you have least patience with your children? It's areas that you know you have succeeded in in life, isn't it? If you were a good student, you have no patience with bad study habits. If you're good with your hands, you have no patience with kids who are all thumbs. You just expect them to do it. That's what's so wonderful about the gospel. It teaches us that we are the losers, that we are the sinners, that we are the bad people. Not people out there, but each of us. And we only live by faith in Christ. We only find forgiveness in Jesus' gracious redemption. And when we see that, we can then understand that others need that as well. That we are more like others than we first thought. And it brings a peace. The third and final thing that we see this morning from this text is that we must be discerning in understanding our need. Jesus begins at verse 54. He begins then to warn the people. Now you recall Jesus has been speaking to his disciples with the crowd around them. You remember last week, Jesus in the, excuse me, Peter in the middle of Jesus' instruction raised his hand and he said, "Um, Jesus, will this be on the test? Are you talking to us? Are you talking to everybody? And Jesus continued to hone in on the disciples and on Peter as a way of actually saying, yes, this will be on the test. But now he broadens it out and he tells the bystanders, you will have a test too. Don't think you can escape. Don't think you are better than others. He turns to the crowd and he says, you know, 
you can see the weather coming. Now, what does this mean? This is, of course, the day before dozens of weather apps on our phones. It's the day before radar. It's the day before even the television weather forecast. Now, I'm not saying that the television weather forecast is is accurate. It's one of the few jobs where you could bat about 40% and keep your job. But this is the day in which broad weather patterns were drawn from the world and from nature. If you looked out toward the west and you saw the sea and you saw clouds, you said rain's coming. And you'd be right most of the time. And when the wind was blowing out of the south from the desert, you would say, looks like it's going to be hot. And you'd be right most of the time. And what Jesus says is, you think you know so many things. Now, I don't think you got up this morning and looked out to see which way the wind was blowing or where the clouds were. I'm sure that you opened up a weather forecast. So let me put it a bit in modern terms. We think we know how technology is going to develop, don't we? Some of you already think you know what the iPhone 7 will look like, don't you? Or what it should look like. We think we understand economic cycles. We know when the next recession is coming, when recovery will be. We look at the factors and the indicators and we know what the future will bring. And Jesus says, we think we know so many things about so many things. And we don't discern the most important things. We don't look at Jesus and see his divine authority when he teaches. That all other opinions are of no value against Jesus. We forget to look at Jesus and see the miracles that he has done as evidence of his power and grace. You would think that the people of Jesus' day could have recognized the cycle that happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It's the story of the book of Judges. That righteousness comes to the people of God and they reject it and then judgment comes. You would think they would be expecting judgment. But you see, before we look at them, we must look at ourselves We have so much more than they have. We have Bibles everywhere. We have the entirety of the New Testament. We have the work of Jesus Christ that is evident in history. And yet we still fail to discern spiritual things. Jesus says, it's like when you're going to the courthouse with your adversary. He says, you better settle on the way. I can tell you that when I was an attorney and whenever there was a difficulty or a potential lawsuit, my advice was always the same. Settle it. What? But I'll be vindicated. No, you won't. It'll wind up costing you. Trust me. Settle it. But, but, no. Have you looked at your case? Not just as you think it should be. Have you looked hard at your case? You see, Jesus says, you're going on the way and you're going to lose. And if you know you're going to lose, you'd better settle quickly. Don't take it to the end. There's an assumption Jesus is making here about you and me that we are guilty, that we have a losing cause. How do we settle then? We settle by admitting our guilt, that all have sinned, and that the wages of sin is death. 
We confess our crimes, not just general crimes, not just the crimes of America, not just the crimes of the society, but our crimes, our lying, our stealing, our hating. We must confess our own sins. We must see that it is truly a hopeless case apart from Christ. And once we have admitted our guilt, and once we see we have no solution for our guilt, then we must believe. Jesus says in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That is how we settle. But if you're sitting here this morning thinking, crazy pastor, I don't need to settle. I'm not really guilty. Or at least I'm not bad enough. Have you seen the guy that lives down the street from me? Have you been watching the stuff that's going on on the internets? I'm not that bad. And let's not rush things. I have so much time. I've got years and years and decades ahead of me. Why would I rush into something like believing Jesus? Jesus calls you to settle your case once and for all with him. There could be nothing easier. You don't know how much time you have. You could have 50 years. You could have 50 seconds. No one knows. And it's not a matter of whether you are worse than someone down the street because you are indeed guilty. We all are guilty. Jesus came to bring a gospel of grace and peace. And that gospel divides. But it divides in such a way that it offers life to those who will believe on Jesus. If you know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, then you are called to follow him with double step. You are called to tell others of the great gospel truth of Jesus' work, and that will bring some harshness and some division into your life. Not everyone will like you. But if you act out of concern and love for others, the Lord our God will honor your work. Jesus has the answer. Jesus is the answer, and he calls us to discern his purpose, and his will, not just for the world, but for each of our lives as well.